Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles, please, with me to the Gospel of Mark. I want to thank you all for your prayers this week as my wonderful wife suffered the unexpected loss of her father and, of course, my children, the loss of their grandpa as well. We grieve together. And we're so grateful to have a church family that wraps its arms around one another, not with mere platitudes or with best wishes, but with real hope. We are a people that are marked by hope. Because death has lost its sting in our life. We do not fear it, but we mourn when it touches us. So we covet your continued prayers that God would use this death to bring others who do not know Christ to saving faith and to cause us as believers to be revitalized in the urgency of the gospel. Because that's what we're doing here this morning, beloved. We do not gather here as a social hour or because it's what we've always done. We are here on business. We are here on the most pressing business known to man. For the lost to come to Christ in repentance and faith and for believers to be transformed into the image of our Savior. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us that it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of praise. Meaning it's well that we consider our temporary state. Scripture calls our life a vapor in light of eternity. To be sober-minded, to live out the gospel with urgency and with intensity. And we are able to know that gospel through the wonderful Bible that we hold in our hands this morning. If you visit harrisonhills.org, you'll see a section on there that speaks about the very Bible that we hold. The 66 books of the Bible that are literally the Word of God, written down by men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. And we teach that all of the Bible, in its original documents, both in part and in whole, are the inerrant and the infallible Word of God. The Scripture we hold in our hands are the only authoritative, objective, and sufficient standard for all matters of godliness and faith for both practice and doctrine throughout all generations. In a world that rejects the, even the notions of knowable truth and of absolutes, we boldly proclaim that the Bible is the only source of objective truth given to us by a God who speaks. We testify that Scripture stands in authority over all creation, over all peoples, and over His church. That it is a standard by which all men and women and children will be judged on the last day. Because the Bible is the Word of God. As a pastor and as a congregants, it is our obligation before God. And it is indeed our joy to handle it accurately to submit our will to it, knowing that we do not stand in authority over the Word, but that the Word stands in authority over us, even when we don't like what it has to say, even when it stings a little bit. Regardless of the changing and the shifting times, Scripture stands immovable. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And as cultural views change on different topics, Scripture does not move. And thus, as His people, we do not move. And that is eventually going to put us at odds with the world that we live in. You know, some periods in history are more difficult than others. The great experiment of America has been an unimaginable blessing, having this historic Judeo-Christian ethic that sought to align itself in societal practice with biblical precepts. 
But today, that alignment between societal norms and the Word of God has been all but abandoned in most venues of public discourse. Even the pretext of giving a wink and a nod to biblical precept have been left as the common grace of shame is removed from our national conscience. Nowhere is this more evident than in the arena of biblical sexuality. Some are aware that last week, pastors in over 4,000 churches nationwide, to include Canada, took to the pulpits in defense of biblical sexuality. The clarion call for this stand was sent out not only by Dr. John MacArthur, but by several of the pastors in Canada who were imprisoned over these last two years for defying the government's order to close their churches under the guise of public health. This call to pastors and churches to shine a special light on this subject last week was given in response to legislation that, was been, that has been expedited through the Senate in Canada. In December, the House of Commons pushed through a bill with unanimous consent and without any public debate or input. This law was marked Bill C-4, banning what they classify as conversion therapy. Now, some may not be familiar with this term, but Conversion therapy essentially is a very broad label that's meant to encapsulate any effort by someone, whether it be a counselor or a parent, to attempt to change a person from having homosexual desires to having heterosexual desires. Now, it must be said that in the past, history, highly unbiblical methods were used to try and cure or remove someone's homosexual thoughts or tendencies. We saw abhorrent things like electroshock therapy, exposure to heterosexual pornography, various drugs, all used by the psychiatric community to supposedly cure someone of homosexual desires. Well, as is so often the case with secular psychiatry and psychology, they're often correct in their observations. They even make biblical observations about human nature without knowing it or calling it as such. They can pinpoint the pain and the suffering that comes with trauma or with sin, but they cannot prescribe the antidote for that sin. As we said at the opening, culture will move and change. And the prescriptions doled out by that culture to ease the pain of sin will vacillate, with the goalposts being moved with with every generation, declaring what is and is not acceptable in a given culture. And this continues until there is no such thing as sin. And indeed, if we cannot affirm what is absolute or what is true, how then can we classify what even constitutes sin? However, Scripture does not change because its author is unchanging. This means that every generation of believers is on an eventual collision course with the fallen world that we live in. Now, some are blessed to live in times of relative peace, with their culture and their government. And other pl- others are placed at times where we are running headlong toward each other at breakneck speeds. And so we have arrived at a collision point with the introduction of Bill C-4 in Canada, a country which has been often used as somewhat of a test tube for social policies that eventually make their way to the United States. A very, glim- a very brief glimpse of history tells us that if it's happening in Canada or in the UK, it's coming here. And in fact, a number of states have already instituted such legislation, though with far less teeth of enforcement and language. But as we said, the purpose of Bill C-4, which was received by royal assent on December 8th 
and was passed into law on January 7th is to ban the use of what they term conversion therapy. Now, we're not talking about banning methods of the past that were clearly wrong when psychiatry tried to deal medically with a spiritual problem. No, this bill prohibits any attempt in word or in deed to question a person's sexuality or attempt to change that person in any way. The, the bill goes as far verbatim as to call biblical sexuality a myth, a damaging myth that harms people who come in contact with it. And the myth of biblical sexuality is so damaging that in the view of the Canadian government, it ought to be a criminal offense to share what the Bible says about sexuality. In a letter published by Liberty Coalition Canada, they write, quote, the bill's wording is sufficiently broad to allow for the criminal prosecution of Christians who would speak biblical truth into the lives of those in bondage to sexual sins like homosexuality and transgenderism. Even a mother or father who offers their children freedom from sexual sin through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ could be threatened with five years in jail. Close quote. So Bill C-4 effectively criminalizes 2,000 years of Orthodox Christian teaching concerning biblical sexuality. Not only is biblical truth labeled a myth, but it seeks to jail anyone who would point either same-sex attracted individuals or those who are seeking to alter their gender to the freedom that is found in Christ. Guiding them to the forgiveness and the completeness that comes through repentance and faith is now a jailable offense. As a result of this bill, if a parent tells their child that as the creator, God has the right to tell us whether we are male or female, and has written his desire for us all over our anatomy, over our personality, over our desires, down to our DNA. If that child were to turn their parent into the school or law enforcement, that parent could now be in prison for five years under this law. It is not hyperbole to say that orthodox, mainline Christian teaching on sexuality has been effectively criminalized in the country of Canada. Now, they use the term conversion therapy. And if that's what that meant, as Christians, we could affirm banning that because we don't employ unbiblical tactics, nor do we employ medical solutions to spiritual problems. But the way the law is written is specifically meant to target those with a biblical view of sexuality. Criminal code has now been written against any effort to, quote, repress or reduce sexual behavior. It is now a crime to tell someone that there is freedom in Christ. It is a crime to join with Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. He says, Or do you not know that their unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Here in one blinding ray of light, Paul destroys every argument lifted up by our society that there is freedom and hope. And such were some of you. 
You were sexually immoral. You were committing homosexual acts, but you have been washed. You're not that person anymore. As Christians, we declare to anyone toiling under the weight of this sin that Scripture not only says that you may put off that sin, but that God through His Holy Spirit will give you the strength and the ability to live a life free from its clutches, just as He does any besetting sin that we are called to flee from. Over the past year, we've spoken on a number of occasions what it means to obey the government what it means and what it does not mean. And in the case of Bill C-4 and any other subsequent legislation mirroring that in the United States, we stand with Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.29 declaring that we must obey God rather than men. We will never cease to preach freedom and forgiveness in Christ. We will not walk by a person languishing in their sin bearing the weight of sexual sin and not speak of God's enabling grace to free them if they will come in repentance and faith. The inerrant and infallible scripture that we hold in our hands says very clearly that homosexuality is sin, that transgenderism is sin. And in fact, many in the Corinthian church Paul was writing to had lived this lifestyle, but Paul says that they are now free from that sin. We will not bow down to a system that tells us we may not offer freedom in Christ. We will never bow down to a system that would require us to leave someone in their sin. We love people far too much to do that. And we love them with the love of God, which necessitates truth. Any love that is not accompanied by truth is not the love of God. It comes from somewhere else. God's love necessitates truth. Such were some of us, Paul encouraged. And we will proclaim that liberty to all those who have been held captive. Beloved, all over Canada and the United States last Sunday, over 4,000 pastors stood and committed what many countries now call a crime. And it is coming to our shores. And indeed, it's already here in various forms. We have similar laws being proposed currently as close as West Lafayette, Indiana. Let us not take a measure of comfort that we only speak about Canada this morning, saints. It is at our door. It's at our door. And yet as we see the bravery of these pastors and congregations to fearlessly love those who are caught in the throes of sexual sin, how fitting here at HHBC that we are knee-deep in a series titled Count the Cost. And we must be praying for our brothers and sisters to the north whose cost for discipleship was just raised considerably. So be awake, be sober, be ready and willing. Amen? Amen. Well, last week as we began our series titled, Count the Cost, as we approach the end of Mark chapter 8, we've come upon a linchpin of Mark's gospel. This is a hinge and a fulcrum around which everything else rotates and swings. This is a point of reckoning. This is a gut check and this is a heart check. And a great responsibility hangs upon this text to get it right, saints, to understand it and to apply it as Jesus intended. And last week, Jesus began defining what it looks like to walk out the gospel. Jesus has begun putting to us the cost of discipleship. And in this series, we've begun to behold the reality of the Christian life, that it is one of self-denial, 
not of self-gratification. That there's a metaphorical cross with our name on it. And that we are called to live a life of obedience, of sacrifice, of self-denial. And yes, even of danger. As we said, if Jesus ever gave something resembling an altar call in the Gospels, we've come upon it. And indeed, no one could clear a room like Jesus when he starts laying out the true cost to follow him. We began last week with verse 34, where Jesus had gathered both the crowds and his disciples to him. And he gets ready to drop some crushing weights on them. By way of reminder, verse 34 from last week reads, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We must be reminded of our context and of our audience because today has not changed, right? As we press on to verse 35, we have these same people present. We have the disciples and we have the crowd. This is Mark's way of saying that we have both believers and unbelievers here. Because crowds and Mark, they're typically depicted in a, a very negative light, right? They're not true followers of Christ. They merely love the gifts that Jesus brings, but they don't love the gift giver himself. And of course, we have the true disciples. And as painful as it was, we began our message with the analogy of a doctor re-breaking bones. A hard analogy that makes one cringe, but that's what's happening. Jesus is coming in with a crushing message, a devastating gospel. The true call of the gospel, the call to bid thee come and serve, the call to bid thee come and obey, and the call to bid thee come and die. Jesus is breaking the spiritual bones of everyone listening, but the difference lies in the audience. For the crowds, this message that they're hearing is going to do them in. This will guarantee that they walk away forever. The bones of their spiritual body are being irreparably broken. They cannot and will not follow Jesus upon hearing of the high cost exacted by discipleship. And when the disciples' bones are being broken as well, they're being broken by this devastating gospel. Why are they being broken? They are being broken by the master physician in order that Jesus might reset them. But the crowd and the disciples will have their spiritual bones broken by this message. But the crowd's purpose for hearing it is damnation. The disciples is to reset them, to reset those bones. And this is going to hurt, but it needs to be done. If you do not follow me on the way to Calvary, if your steps are not the steps of the cross, you have no part of me. By presenting the gospel, Jesus is telling the disciples that the system that they've been raised in, this twisted form of Judaism, it's deformed your bones under the weight of legalism. And it's now hardened and it's calcified that way. And now your arms and your legs are crooked and you cannot come after me in that condition. So I'm going to break those bones. I'm going to break them and I'm going to reset them for you. And it's for your good that you might be able to follow after me, that you might be able to run the race in such a way as to win. Jesus is telling the disciples in a hundred different ways that the Messiah you think you were looking for, the gospel you think you know, what you've been trained to believe up in your life up to this point, it's all wrong. And we must get this. If we follow any other gospel than the one presented here, we have no part of him. God is no respecter of persons. What was true for the disciples then is true for us here this morning. 
In the first part of verse 34, just by quick way of review, Jesus opens, if anyone wishes to come after me, verse 34. Now you'll recall that we determined who this anyone was by the verb attached to it. We were tempted to think of anyone as anyone, as everyone. But we learned that the anyones are doing what? That they're wishing. Of course, our English fails us here. We wish for things in English as a hope, right? As a wish. But not so to our original audience. Recall the word for wishing here is thalo, meaning a determined and constant exercise of the will. That's not how we use wishing, is it? So if we expand out what Jesus is saying here, he's saying anyone, anyone who has a determined, continuous will to follow me. Jesus is talking about believers. The lost do not possess a determined, continuous will to follow Christ. That's important. Why? We can get errant theology that comes from failing to dig into the text, to understand it as the original audience would have understood it. So tuck this away because we're going to see this same principle straight away in our text this morning. By way of reminder, the last part of verse 34 last week, we saw Jesus give a vital principle of biblical counseling, right? That of putting off and that of putting on. As an example, we're called to put off sin and we're called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ right? It's two sides of the same coin. If we only do one, if we're only to be, if we're only, if we just put off, we would be naked, but we're called to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we see Jesus using the same principle back here in our text. We're putting off what? We're putting off self. Deny yourself. Put off yourself. We were reminded what it means to deny yourself. Most hear that as a call to give up something in particular, right? To deny yourself a luxury, to deny yourself a fancy cup of coffee on the way to work. But we listen to Jesus' words. We listen to his words. That he's not telling us to deny something. He's telling us to deny someone, mainly ourself. And here's where the numbers start adding up on the calculator as we sit down and we count the cost of discipleship. To deny yourself means that our identity is gone. We're not denying something, we're denying someone. We are crucified with Christ. We're a new creation. We're given a new heart with new desires. I do not live for me. To deny myself is to abandon my identity and everything that goes along with keeping that image up. If our identity is gone, it's gone because we're no longer our own. Scripture tells us that we have been bought as slaves. Boy, our American sensibilities sure do not like to hear that, do they? That we are marked and branded. To deny myself means that someone now owns me. You're not your own anymore. That's what we're putting off. But we must put on. We must put on as well. What in our text were we called to put on? What were we called to take up in verse 34? Take up your cross. We were forced to abandon our understanding of the cross as we see it, right? Viewing our Savior hanging on the tree as, as the terrible and beautiful and perfect price for our salvation and freedom, right? Because the cross in our mind is high and lifted up. It's revered. It's sacred. It's surrounded by the light of heaven in our mind's eye. But that's not so to our original audience. We were forced to look at the cross as they would have looked at the cross if we're to understand it rightly. And there is nothing glorious about a cross to them. It was the most tragic, obscene punishment in the Roman world. It was reserved for the most despicable criminals, 
for the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst. There's nothing noble about this calling. This is not a grand gesture. We were reminded last week that this call from Jesus was one to come and suffer. Come and die in the lowest of ways reserved for the most shameful of crimes. That the world will not esteem you. They will not applaud you for choosing to follow me. They want to kill you. Not just kill you, but make a public spectacle of your death. They will hate you. They will kill you in a way reserved for only the worst terrorists and criminals. Take up your cross. We are reminded that a cross is not merely a trial. It's not a hardship in life. Even the hardest pains is not what it means to take up your cross, as is so often misapplied. A cross is a wound. It's a pain. It's a challenge or a hardship that is endured for the sake of Christ. A cross is something that we bear when we suffer as a direct result of following Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross. Where does that exist in our life? Where has that happened in our life? Perhaps we've lost a family relationship because of your faith. Lost jobs. A Christian life does not come without a cross. There's no exceptions. If you do not deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, Jesus said, you can have no part of me. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. That's a devastating gospel. It's a call from the shepherd that only the sheep will hear. All others will scatter at the sound. Now, I know that's a lengthy introduction, but in truth, these verses that we're going through in our series are so intimately connected that we must be re-immersed in them to see the next as we should. So with that, let's look at our text. Mark 8, verse 35. Mark 8, verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, as we continue in your word this morning, these are texts that require the intimate application that only your Holy Spirit can apply. Lord, we ask that you continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, your sheep hear your voice, the voice of the shepherd. Lord, we ask that you would tend to us in power and in gentleness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of us when we were growing up, we used to hear the saying around the schoolyard or or with friends, they would say, finders keepers, losers weepers. That was the street law of the schoolyard, wasn't it? It says, if I find something, it's mine. I get to keep it. If you lost it, tough luck, go cry on the swing, right? Well, happily, this law does not extend beyond the schoolyard bully into the life of the Christian. And with so many principles that Jesus gives, up is, down, up is down and down is up. What we have heard, what we have known up to this point in our life is so very wrong. Logic would state if I give something away, I lose it. I no longer possess it. And that would make sense. But in our walk with Christ, it is not so. To save our life, we must lose it. And if we lose our life for the gospel's sake, we save it. Now, it seems counterintuitive. It's a paradox but one that we are going to dive into. So let's look closer at our text, beginning with the word for. For. Now, it seems like an unimportant word, yet it's critical. 
The word for is an explanatory term. It's a connecting term, meaning I'm going to explain what I just said. Similar to the word therefore. So I've just told you in verse 34 that you're to deny yourself. I've just told you that you're to pick up your cross and follow me. Now, if I'm in the crowd, even if I'm a disciple, my next logical question is going to be, why? Why? Again, we must abandon what we think and we know about the cross and what Jesus accomplished for us on that cross. The beauty of the cross has no bearing here. That has not happened yet. All they know is that Jesus has just called them to a gruesome death. Billy Graham said, quote, It was the same as saying, Come and bring your electric chair with you. Take up your gas chamber and follow me. Close quote. I bid thee come and die. Okay, I hear you, Jesus. Question, why? What good am I to you dead? Surely I would be much better that I would be alive for you. The whole thing seems a bit morbid to us. An explanation is in order for this incredibly devastating gospel. Just a short while ago, we thought we were going to be high generals. High generals in your messianic army as we pummel the Romans. Forget us being killed. We're the ones doing the overthrowing. Now, what is this message? Deny myself? Take up an instrument of death and follow you on a death march reserved for the worst criminals? I have no words. An explanation is kindly in order. That's why the word for matters. Meaning an explanation for this audacious claim is forthcoming. So back to our text, for. What's our next word? Whoever. I see some of our extra credit congregants perking up out there. Who are we talking about? Who is whoever? Is that anyone and everyone? Same principle from last week when Jesus said anyone, both the anyone from last week and the whoever from this week are both described for us in the same way, aren't they? What are they doing? We not only see an adjective, but a verb. What are they doing? They're wishing. There it is again. For whoever wishes principle for reading your Bible, beloved. When you see the same word used in close proximity to one another, that author wants you to connect the two. And so we are. And so we are. What does wishing mean? Remember thalo. This means a what? Constant and determined exercise of the will. So let's expand out what Jesus is saying here. We read in verse 35, for whoever wishes. So expand it out. Jesus is saying, I'm about to explain to you why anyone, whoever, that's determined with every fiber of their will to follow me, why they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me, and to become the ridicule of the world. So here comes the explanation. Back to our text. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Well, here we see two lives. First, a life that needs to be saved and a life that needs to be abandoned. But what is Jesus saying? What is the life that needs to be saved? What is true life? What exchange is Jesus saying is required for those who would deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him? Well, Jesus is speaking on two levels here. He's speaking in the eternal and he's speaking in the temporal. What is the life we seek to save? Our temporal or our eternal? 
Well, given that our immediate context is the command to pick up an instrument of our own execution and follow him, we know that Jesus is not talking about saving our physical life in the here and now. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. Jesus is speaking about eternity. And indeed, all but one of the apostles would die horrific deaths for their testimony of Christ. The apostles saved their life. Because we're speaking of, of ultimate life. And we coined the term efocals, didn't we? Remember that back in Mark 7? Efocals, meaning our eternity glasses, the lenses that we are to put on as we walk the Christian life with eternity in view. That's the life we seek to save, an eternity with Christ. If we desire to save our life, we will lose it. So we cannot ignore the immediate application here of actually losing our life. Physical martyrdom for your testimony. That is in view and was a reality for many. As we mentioned in a recent message, more Christians have been killed in this century than all previous centuries combined. So lest we think we're speaking in extreme language or hyperbole, many are losing your lives, are losing their lives. If you're not subscribed to the periodical Voice of the Martyrs, I would commend it to you. Thus, we cannot ignore the very real physical context in losing our life, the giving of our actual body for the testimony of Christ. That is solidly in view in our text. Now, thankfully, we live, we are blessed to live in a country that does not yet kill us for our beliefs and our testimony. But this verse is no less applicable to Lanesville 2022. The reward is the same. We gain our life. We gain eternal life. So what must we lose? How does someone living in the relative safety and religious freedom of Indiana walk this out? How do you lose your life to save it? Well, Paul captures the heart of this call in Philippians 3.8. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. If our focus is on the here and now, our future is doomed. If our comfort and prize is this world, we have no world to come. If our life is structured to make this our reward, you have no reward waiting. If you are a citizen of heaven, you hold your life and your possessions and your plans and your reputation and your image with an open hand. They are rubbish that I might gain Christ. He is our reward. If he is not our reward in the here and now, you do not have a future with him. What an exchange Jesus calls us to. Give up this life and gain me. For each of us this morning, the Holy Spirit is ministering to your hearts right now what that means in your life. Doesn't mean that's all it is, but right now, something needs to die. The sand that you've been gripping with a tight fist, the tighter you hold, the more it slips through your fingers. Lose your life, gain Christ. Make the great exchange. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And, a, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Matthew 13. Do you hear what our Savior is saying? You cannot hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. Split affections will bring ruin to your soul. That is going to look different for each person. Each person is drawn away by their own lusts, by the things that they desire. My prayer is, even as we speak, that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind split affections. Something that needs to die that He might have preeminence in our life, yielding eternal life. Are we counting the costs yet, dearly beloved? As the numbers on the calculator continue to climb, as the costs continue to rise, the image of Christ is either growing more brilliant in your mind's eye or it's growing more dim as the costs inflate. James Edwards writes, quote, The one for whom the way of Jesus is more important than his own existence will secure his eternal being. But the one whose existence is more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and his existence. Close quote. Count the cost. Count the cost. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Final part of our verse. Isn't it fascinating here that Jesus makes distinctions of sacrifice? You're going to lose your life. Two arenas. For my sake and for the gospel's sake. Jesus is driving at the internal and the external. For my sake is driving at the internal. Personal devotion. A drive to be consumed in mind and spirit with the precepts of Christ. To love all that He loves. To daily be transformed into the image of Christ. To be washing your mind with His Word. But saints, what should the outworking of that inner devotion be? Warren Wearsby writes, quote, Personal devotion should lead to practical duty. The sharing of the gospel with the lost world. Well, I don't wear my religion on my sleeve. Then you have no part of him. I love Jesus in my heart. That's between me and him. No, it's not. No, it's not. If your personal devotion does not lead to practical duty, you have no part in him. One has chosen the comforts of this world. The need for acceptance of the world and their acceptance of their Savior. Be a fool for Christ. Be a fool for Him. Lose your life, and for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, internal and external. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, after leading a life of unimaginable sacrifice, he said with all surety, I never made a sacrifice. I never made one. He had truly lost all for Christ. His life was forfeit, but he knew what he had gained. He knew what he had gained. In closing, I'm reminded of Jim Elliott. Many of you know him. Most in here know of the famous missionary who gave his life to bring the gospel to natives in Ecuador. What many may not know is that Jim Elliott, he was a very promising student at Wheaton College in Illinois. He was a champion wrestler. He was an honor student. He was an amateur poet. He was warmly admired by all the students at, at Wheaton. He, he dated and he married the prettiest girl at school. He was the big man on campus. And in his studies, he read the words of Luke 9. 
and he took them seriously. During his senior year, he wrote in his journal those now famous words. He is no fool to gain what he cannot lose. Years later, a young man traveling in Ecuador, he he flew in a small plane over the country, and this pilot knew of Jim Elliott's ministry. And he said, hey, when, when we fly over the place where Jim Elliott and the others died, show me, the man said to the pilot. I can't take you there, replied the pilot. Why not? Because Jim Elliott did not die in Ecuador. Perplexed, the young man remarked, yeah, I know that Jim Elliott died here in Ecuador. No, Jim Elliott's body died here, the pilot said. But Jim Elliott died as a student back at Wheaton College when he yielded his life to God no matter the consequences. That's when he died. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Let us count the costs, beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through this series, you have forced us to sit down soberly. Lord, to reflect on what the cost is of following you. Lord, in each one of our lives this morning, something needs to die. Lord, there is something that is splitting our affection, that is keeping us from laying hold of the fullness that is in you and the fullness that is in our walk with you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us soft hearts to know what it is that you would have us die to. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep those who are not with us this week. Lord, as sickness still is in our congregation. Lord, we ask that you would watch over us. In Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.